0: Listening to the Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. Before I introduce today's guest, a quick word. The Voice of Insurance has had 20,900 downloads since launch, with another 900 just in the last seven days. So thanks for listening. That's about a year and two months of listening time. If you'd put a one minute advert in every episode, you would have had over eight days and nights of talking to the market. So do make sure you tell your marketing teams to get in touch with me. Today's guests brings with him a difficult message for our industry in this COVID-19 crisis. Quite simply, we're not doing well enough. We're not being consistent enough. Some of our decisions are being driven purely by cost and profit considerations. We're too distant from the customer. We're letting small businesses down, and we're restricting cover going forwards where we shouldn't be. Listen to me say this. You would think he was a radical plaintiff lawyer looking to whip up publicity for a class action. But as CEO of the UK risk manager's trade body, Airmic, John Ludlow is anything but a firebrand. His members are the biggest buyers of insurance in the UK, who pay billions in premiums and are sophisticated professionals who rarely raise their voices. As his supplier, we have to listen to what he's got to say. His complaint speaks to something fundamental about what we as an industry should be striving to achieve. In this podcast, John describes Airmic as a critical friend of the insurance industry. This may be painful listening, but in the next 20 minutes, I recommend you really take detailed notes of what our friend has got to say. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. What's your overall report card on the insurance sector right now? Well, so
1: far, I think the response from the industry has fallen rather short of its own high standards and certainly its own founding principles. Uh, Some insurers have responded positively, but for the most part, I think the response to claims have been profit-driven and rather inflexible. Focus has been on minimising their costs while responding to long-standing clients with a bit of a, well, one-size-fits-all, really.
0: I think there you're referring to carriers. And how are brokers doing? How are they performing in their duties, do you think?
1: Well, I think brokers, after a slow start with when the harsh market came in, Last year actually doing okay at the moment. They very much feel like they're on the side of the clients. And I still fear there's a problem when it comes to the SME space. I see poor behaviors uh, where the brokers are acting as agents rather than uh, trusted advisors uh, to the clients. And that kind of ties back to the purpose point I was making earlier on, where the insurance industry as a whole needs to really think about its purpose and align its behaviour and uh, policies with that purpose.
0: Talking about behaviours, you know, what are the best and the worst examples of behaviours that you've seen?
1: Well, I think the uh, better end of the scale is when you've got true customer focus, you've got inquisitive people understanding what the customer's problems are that they're trying to solve in a wider risk management way and recognising that insurance is part of the toolkit for solving the problem. And when there is a claim, it's understanding what the problem has been understanding what the impacts are and then going back and saying right okay with that policy I sold you you know how does it actually respond and helping the client understand that that's I think the broker's job role and then it's a a mature discussion with the insurer about the claim and I think if that's how the claim is framed and the discussion goes from there and it's uh, not all about who can defend the balance sheet best then I think it should come to a positive outcome. At the end of the day, claims need to be paid quickly, decisions, proper discussions need to be had quickly, rather than stringing it out over a number of years. The whole point is to keep the business healthy, keep it going, not trying to uh, minimise the claim.
0: John, you alluded to this, the biggest problem in commercial insurance over COVID-19 has been probably with small and medium-sized enterprises, SMEs. AirMix membership is a bit more larger companies, isn't it? How's their experience been?
1: It's not been great, to be honest. I think the insurers have certainly been changing decisions on underwriting, on the terms, on the wording, at very short notice. Their partnership seems to have disappeared somewhat, particularly on some lines and in some industries. There have been some terrible tales coming back. And uh, yes, it's not been great. The the relationship, though, is better than it is in the SMEs. It's just started in a healthier place. The relationships are more robust. But there's been an awful lot of shocks. We've had, I think, on DNO in particular, we're starting to see things that are worrying us. But also in uh, employers' liability, I think we're starting to get concerned where people are starting to put in exclusions that they shouldn't be putting in.
0: Do you understand that, though, that these presumably are exclusions for renewals that are happening during this period now? Is that fair, though? What else do you think insurers can do if they already know your house is on fire, for example? Can they carry on insuring something that they know once they know about it?
1: I think there's a difference, isn't there, between, you know, your house on fire, sure, if it's already happening, if the event is happening, absolutely, but fundamentally, on D&O, for instance, the problem there is that the trigger for dno is mismanagement not the pandemic so if there's a mismanagement issue then that's the trigger for the policy don't tell me pandemics are excluded because that's not the trigger
0: obviously this is a differentiating point again and i was just wondering are there any types of carriers that are performing better than others? You, you said initially you were talking about profit-driven responses. Are there any types of carriers that are doing better than others, or are they all tied with the same brush?
1: No, not everybody's tarred with the same brush, and I think it's a spectrum, and people put themselves on that spectrum over time, actually. So I, think, um, I think the mutuals generally have a more natural, instinctive empathetic approach to things and want to have a more relationship it's more of a journey we go on together some of the uh, shareholding insurers are very keen on their purpose and their values and the behaviors and that is coming through i mean absolutely there are there are people that are, are doing well in the relationship stakes but then there are some unfortunately who still think they're there just to make profit for their shareholders and everybody else, frankly, gets what they can afford. And that isn't good. That doesn't bode well for the industry. It doesn't bode well for the behaviours. So it does come back to, if you value your reputation in the market, you need to be responsible, and that means driven by stakeholder concerns, then you will become resilient. And that's how you should aim to be a resilient insurer, not by just trying to defend your balance sheet.
0: Airmic put out a position paper on the 12th of May outlining your position as representatives of the largest buyers of insurance in the UK over COVID-19. How's that been received by the industry? By the way, if you're listening, I'm I'm going to put a link to that paper in the notes. Anyway, how's that been received, John?
1: I think it's been received pretty well, really. At the end of the day, you know, I see part of Airmix's responsibility and part of the deal, if you like, in our relationship is that we should be a critical friend, especially when it's needed. We don't run around wolf or anything but when it's needed we should stand up and we should say something and we did and it was quite interesting actually one end of the market rang up and sort of said oh you don't know how hard it is you know the profits are down the claims are up and uh, our returns are not going to be any good and the the insurance pool is smaller and it's going to get smaller the other end was quite hang about, that's us. You're not describing us like that. And we teased it out. And yeah, you start to see how different people have reacted differently. It is a brand thing. uh, What's your purpose? What's your values? What are you actually trying to, what's your promise to the customer? And I think you can start to see the differences between companies. And I think buyers should be more discerning.
0: In terms of resolving some of the disputes that have emerged because of COVID-19, the FCA has now come out to say, having reviewed some of the more ambiguous wordings, the ones that it's putting up for a test case, that is actually, it, in its own view, it's on the side of, of the plaintiff and inside of the of the customer in, in that ambiguity, i.e. to say that it probably did, co- it, there was cover for pandemics for that. Do you think that whole situation, this sort of resolution of this situation, is it going fast enough? What would you be advocating?
1: I think the FCA did a good thing by pulling some of these wordings up and saying, come on, let's have a look at them and see if we can't just push this along a bit, because absolutely, time is of the essence. You know, We've got hundreds of thousands of businesses that are in desperate need of help, cash flow help. And if these contracts should fall in their favour, then let's get that out in the open and get it on with. I think trying to delay things and string things out is not going to actually do anybody any favours, because it completely undermines the efficacy of, of the insurance discipline. If there is help coming from these policies, let's get it done and get it done quickly. I think with the ambiguity question, I've got very little sympathy with the insurance industry, if there's ambiguity in SME contracts, because it's probably been put there by design. And I think the FCA is probably right if it's come down on the side of the customer because the customer is the less informed side of this. I think when it comes to the uh, big corporate customer, it's slightly different. It's a double-edged sword. Uh, But ambiguity in the SME space, I think is there by design if it's there. At the end of the day, though, for known perils, that's the case. What I would add in defence of the insurance industry is that when it becomes an emerging risk, or a new asset class, then of course, there's going to be ambiguity. And if an SME is looking to cover something like that, then they clearly need professional broker support. And that isn't something to be done, a policy to be bought over the phone, or even over the internet.
0: I know the industry will probably hate this, but in terms of for something like SME, do you think that the industry is more likely to, You know, we've had contract certainty for 20 years, but really that was really about having the certainty of having a contract rather than knowing exactly what that contract says and knowing that that contract is unambiguous. So do you think we're more likely to get, or would you welcome more robust intervention from the regulator to make sure, effectively or to almost approve wordings that are going to be bought by unsophisticated consumers? Uh, so that they are unambiguous and so that they do what they're supposed to do if the industry
1: won't get there itself then yes and I I do think we're all in a bit of a bind aren't we because insurance there's a tendency for it to become commoditized price you know insurance is bought on price by too many people and when that happens the insurers obviously want to try and uh, rip the cost out of the product and that is exclusions so we're all in this together slightly But that's why you have a regulator. And I do think the regulator's got a role in basically saying, hang about, those products you're selling, let's have a look at them and make sure they are fit for purpose with what society expects them to do. And if they're not, then I think the regulator does have a really value-added role in saying, no, we're not going to have that. We're going to have this. And by the way, if that brings a flaw to the price of the market, then good. It's good for everybody. I don't think it does but any favors putting products out there that don't work.
0: And do you think the regulator might get more involved in forcing us out of our conspiracy of silence, perhaps what I'm referring to there is that, again, there is an inertia when you're talking about emerging perils. No one really wants to be the first to open the can of worms to ask whether X, Y, Z new emerging peril. For example, we've had the similar thing with cyber or we've had electromagnetic fields or it could be any new emerging peril, particularly in the casualty side of things that no one ever wants, you know, the broker just wants to get on and get their brokerage and move on to the next account. Same with probably the underwriter. And actually, in many ways, sometimes the insured just wants to move on and not open the can of worms, not ask the difficult question, the specific questions to whether something is covered or whether it is not covered, because they're probably they're scared of getting the answer. That as soon as you start asking, it becomes excluded and it almost suits everybody for it to be silent. But again, of course, I would presume that it, it doesn't really suit it in the long run. That never suits every, It never suits anybody, because when the peril does finally emerge, then you get into a mess like we are in now.
1: It comes a tipping point, doesn't there? So things are silent initially because they're not there. And then they are they start to be there and everybody does have a bit of a silence to begin with. But again, this comes back actually to which insurer you're insured, you know, what's the behavior of your an insurer? And that's something, you know, at a big corporate level, you know, you know. And I can absolutely remember, you know, thinking, hang about, if we change insurer, we really want to know a bit more about how that wording's gonna work. Because some insurers are more black and white over this stuff, and other insurers. It's all about the relationship and we'll work things out. And at a big insurance level, big company insurance level, I think that's fine. It's all fair in love and war. But I think in the SME space, I do think the regulator has got a a value added role. The problem we're going to have, I think, if I'm brutally honest, is that I can't see the government putting a lot of money into the regulator's Pocket to resource them to do the job. And I think with the impending recession, uh, with hardening borders and all of that, I've got a return that this issue is not going to be tackled. Uh, but I do applaud the FCA for having a go at this one and bringing it forwards.
0: Probably have to park all of that because I'm sure this is going to be front page news for a very long time to come, and it's going to be litigated all sorts of different ways through the courts. But trying to look forward now, we're, you know, we're coming out of lockdown, coming to everyone's describing as a new normal. In a new post-pandemic normal, or well not post or during pandemic normal, in our new normal, how does the industry have to change if it's going to be fit for purpose?
1: Well, we've been saying for a while that the industry needs to, certainly at the EMIC level, needs to get closer to the client to understand the changes the clients are going through because the pace of change has altered enormously. Business models have altered enormously. The whole thing, businesses have become interconnected and that's why you have these connected risks that are catching us out. I think it's no longer good enough just for an underwriter to sort of look at the accounts of a, you know, sort of public information and decide what the price should be and whether somebody, whether a product is okay or not. I think there needs to be a much closer relationship because actually we're on a learning journey together, aren't we? And I don't think anybody has got all the answers or it can be expected to know what all the answers are. The environment is changing around us. Our businesses are changing as we speak. Surely, to goodness, we need to sit around a table and have a proper review of the needs of the business, how products can be changed and, and adapted to better meet those needs, and uh, what the right price is for those. I don't think one size fits all in the big corporate sector. And I think we need well-educated, well-compassed people, people who understand why they're there, and what the purpose of the conversation is, having a a collaborative discussion. You know, we had to cancel our conference. (laughs) It was going to be working together. We've actually, for Air Fest, which is in September, we've actually calling it working together in, ta- in a time of accelerated change. That is exactly it. You know, how do you do that? And the answer is you change the relationship. And it's much more a roundtable discussion with a number of different people coming up with solutions to businesses
0: problems. We've had a lot of talk about how we might be as a country covering a pandemic's of the future and other emerging risks there are working groups there are different proposals so things perhaps uniting pool re and flood re and other perils and proposals like totus re what's your view if you were called in to design a public-private pandemic solution for the uk what form would it take john
1: well i actually think we've got to start with the national risk register the national risk register has got a bit of dust on it and it needs refreshing and it needs to be kept refreshed, not something you do every couple of years. So there's got to be some capability in government to keep that up to date. I think then it's not just enough to do the planning, which they clearly did pre-pandemic in 2016. They did, a, uh, did an exercise and they foretold all the issues that we were going to have. What they need to do is also then move on and, and do the preparedness. And I don't think government probably funded that group enough to do that preparedness. So therefore, when the pandemic happened, we were all found to be flat-footed in the UK. And that may have been because of their eye was off the ball. It won't go there. But basically, what we need to do is make sure the money is there so that the planning can be converted into preparedness so that when things happen, we can respond correctly and have a better chance of recovering well. So my first call really is to start with the risk management side of the house. Now then, financing it. How do you do that? Well, things like pool re have been fantastic, but they are sitting on quite a lot of money and capital because fortunately, those policies haven't been called on to date. That might change, but fundamentally, there's a lot of inefficient capital. So what I actually think we ought to do is having established what the risks are and what the vulnerabilities are as well because, you know, you don't, don't want to cover everything. You just cover the things that are vulnerable and the things that the market can't cover well either. You then set up uh, pool re-type vehicles, which can then be reinsured back to a parent to make the capital efficient. So I think you could have a cat re-type of thing, which was government-backed and all the rest of it, and that could be reinsuring the pool re's. But what I think the benefit of that structure is that the enterprise risk or the country risk management can be done by cabinet office and treasury and overseen, you know, with the backed insurance vehicle. But then the cool rees and the flood res can be much more risk specific and make sure that they're fully integrated, their risk management is fully integrated with all the other agencies, be that the uh, you know, the environment agency or whatever.
0: So, do you uh, think, so in the case of something like pandemic, it would be to help maintain some of that redundant, you know, redundant uh, PPE capacity, redundant ventilator capacity, absolutely. and also be at the forefront of vaccine, you know, coronavirus research and vaccine preparedness, yeah. and you know, all that kind of stuff. Stuff that does require capital investment, and and so to be to some of the levies on premiums to go towards that risk management side of things absolutely it's just like a company
1: you know you have a risk you don't just run out and buy insurance at least you shouldn't (laughs) you should look at the risk and try and mitigate it and when you think you've done a pretty good job you're probably at the cusp of okay let's transfer the residual risk through insurance you know it's, it's no different it's no different we should be doing the same with our country risks
0: I had um, a captive specialist, uh, Ollie Schofield, on on the show uh, a few weeks ago, and it was really, really interesting. Does COVID-19 mean that your members are going to be increasing their use of captives? Obviously, we also have a harder market, a much harder market yes. widely, which generally signals greater retentions within self-insured vehicles. What do you think? Is this going to really push a new era of captive use? I think captives
1: have had an exciting future, actually, for a year or two. And it's just, um, they yes, I think they are going to be used more and more. At one level, it's because you've got new assets, you know, you've got reputation, you've got IP, you've got all sorts of things that the market, you know, struggles to ensure. So actually for corporations to use their captives to get a grip of what the risks are or indeed what the assets are and to understand what's happening. That's very useful uh, use of a captive. Obviously, I think the harsh market makes the captive useful. You can always fill the gaps in your program using a captive temporarily, hopefully while you work out a solution. But actually, yes, the harsh market was starting to push people into thinking, do I need to go and buy insurance if it's too expensive or if it isn't really what it needs to be in terms of the wording and the exclusions? I think that's just a trend that's going to be accelerated. Pandemic itself is accelerating that. I think over the next six, nine months, we're going to see an even harsher market. But the insurers need to be careful because if they exclude their way out of business, then the captive is the lifeboat for the, for the insurance manager and uh, they'll be using it. Certainly on D and O sides, uh, B and C, I think going into captives, but that won't be the end of it.
0: And I suppose the one thing with captive is if it's a genuine first party captive and is only insuring you, you don't have to worry about systemic risk.
1: That's right. You still need to obviously uh, find some insurance for part A and that's going to be an issue for people.
0: Absolutely. I think there's always going to be a private insurance market because it's always going to be needed. If you haven't got anything else to talk about, John, it's been absolutely fantastic having you uh, on The Voice of Insurance. There are links to that uh, industry paper. And, and I wish you all the best with your you know, virtual conferencing. I wish you all the best. And thank you so much for coming and speaking to us on The Voice of Insurance.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Mark. And everybody, you know, come to our virtual conference because, of course, You don't have to get on a plane, train, or stay in a hotel even. Absolutely. You You
0: just need your broadband to work. So great stuff. (laughs) Thanks, John. Thank you, Mark.
1: You take care.
0: Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.